Hello and welcome to a special edition of The Chiefs on Monocle 24 with me, Tom Edwards. As 2020 draws to a close, from city mayors to those at the helm of investment banks, international art fairs, national broadsheets and beyond, we're looking back through our impressive catalogue of business leaders to bring you a curated selection of highlights from a year quite unlike any other. Now, in our first special programme, we heard highlights from our first season. Plenty of those leaders who were in the midst of the first wave of the pandemic, with little know-how between them on how the year would pan out. For our next special and our next series, we go back as summer turned to autumn when there was a little more clarity on how different businesses and business leaders would approach the uncertainty with a more long-term view. So to kick off today's episode, we'll turn to one man leading an eastern Mediterranean hub on the rise. Kostas Spakianis has only been mayor of Athens since June 2019, but has approached the position with a productive and positive outlook, even in a difficult year, keeping urban transformation a top priority. Here he is, talking to Tyler Brulé. Athens has, has always been a magnet, uh, as, as long as it was properly on the map and, and people could find it. So yeah, that that is all clear. I'm, I'm very interested, though, and certainly for the people listening to this program who are entrepreneurs and and they're certainly curious in business of course if we if i bumped into you in brussels or or new york if we could all get to new york at the moment what would be the three or four elements that you would say to someone who wants to open up in athens or or certainly in, in greece in a broader sense what are the tools available in terms of of inward investment of course you know we saw the golden passport approach you know not just all over in in portugal we we you know we've seen you know versions of that in malta and and elsewhere but what are those attractive elements that really you have at your disposal right now to, of course, continue to stimulate the economy and, of course, underline that optimistic note that you that you can ride at the moment? I would mention two things. Number one, uh, there have been a number of reforms that have been taking place over the past few months and also over the past few years in battling bureaucracy and in making sure that we create a pro-business uh, environment. Number two... There are a number of economic and financial incentives, taxes, incentives, etc., that are given by the Greek state as we speak. But it's much more than that. Athens, as we speak, is a prime location. Athens has, because of the crisis, the, the prices actually, the values have fallen over the past few years. So now there is a great window of opportunity for someone to come and invest in the city. And especially since the city is actually transforming itself. Let me give you an example. I don't know whether you're familiar with Omonia Square. It's actually our second biggest square. We actually made a big change in the square itself, creating um, a new fountain and changing the landscape 100%. And this is connected with over 20 new investments in tourism, with over 20 new hotels that are built around this square. So it's only a matter of time until Athens changes. You mentioned a series of of projects that are underway. If I was to go and speak to the average Athenian, if there is an average Athenian, what would they say is missing in terms of quality of, of life right now? And what would you like to add? I mean, obviously, you, know, you, you arrived with a powerful platform and mandate on one side. But you know, what are some of the key things when we think about good urbanism? When you think about what really improves people's daily routines, what needs to be delivered. And maybe it's also good to hear also what doesn't need to be fixed. Because as we know, many cities, of course, got things right centuries ago. And and I'm sure probably some of that comes into play when we speak of Athens as well. 
this conversation has two levels. The first level is what we call back to basics, which is making sure that the city is clean, green, well-lit, safe and secure, which has to do with the daily lives and the quality of lives of our citizens. The second level has to do with reclaiming public space and liberating public space. Um, and this is where uh, the pandemic is both a crisis and an opportunity. As I'm sure you know, public health has been a catalyst for big changes in the past. Uh, the Central Park in New York or the London sewage system were actually created during public health crisis. And we are doing something similar as we speak. We have adopted the policy or the model or the methodology of tactical urbanism. We've been reclaiming public space, especially in the city center, unifying our archaeological sites and our cultural sites. We are trying to get to a new balance of sustainable transportation. This is not, of course, an easy task, but over the past few months, there's been a big improvement. I would say that Athens is, as we speak, in the process of actually reintroducing itself, both to its citizens and to its visitors. If you venture out into a nice neighborhood where, of course, and I think good neighborhoods always have a, a pleasant mix of, of residents and you've got businesses and, and street life below, is there a certain tension at the moment? Because if you look at a lot of European cities, particularly a lot of cities which have, have done well, those cities which always come at the top level ranks of quality of life, there's often you could say almost a, a spoilt resident who wants a silent city. Uh, in fact, they've got everything they want. The trams run on time. There's plenty of space for bicycles. Uh, and so then that citizen starts to look for any other irritant as well, which they want to bring up, which they take up with politicians yeah, to, to make almost the city silent. In many ways, people see in, in, in cities with high quality of life, uh, there's almost a bit of a, an anti-business tack. Uh, you're, you, know, you shouldn't uh, expand life past 10 o'clock in the evening because everyone should be tucked away in, in bed. Um, what's your sense in, in Athens uh, right now? Is there is there a way to go? And, and would you say, I wouldn't say citizens are spoiled, but I'm interested in that tension between trying to run a business and then also trying to run a city where, where people also feel that they're getting the best when it comes to livability. Well, I mean, you know, these tensions exist all over the world and they exist in Athens as well. I think there's, there's one big difference when it comes to the character, the identity of Athens itself, which has to do with the fact that, you know, Greeks, by definition, are outward and social people. Uh, the climate, uh, the way of life leads us to, you know, to, to actually enjoy life in our public spaces. I don't think that any Athenian can imagine uh, the city closing at 10 or even at 11 or at 12. At the same time, though, the, this conversation opens the door to another key challenge that we face, which has to do with the distance between the so-called good and the so-called bad neighborhoods. Of course, urban centers all over the world tend to be centers or epicenters of uh, socioeconomic uh, differences. But these divides we aim to bridge at the end of the day, it's about making sure that there aren't visible differences, there aren't such big differences between the more and less lucky, let's say, neighborhoods in Athens. And that is our goal, that is our aim, to be able to actually uh, secure social cohesion in the face of growing challenges, growing challenges that may have to do with the climate crisis, that may have to do 
with the influx of refugees and immigrants, growing challenges that may have uh, to do with unemployment or the economical situation. I'm speaking to you from Zurich, and I'm, I'm referencing and, and just thinking about a, a program which is running here, uh, which you'll probably laugh at, uh, which is this Mediterranean Nights Initiative. Uh, and this is where they want to uh, expand the pavements in the evening. They want people to stay out later. And of course, this is uh, certainly getting up the noses of lots of other people who do want to, you know, be maybe think of, of Zurich uh, the way the way it used to be. And and you have lots of other cities trying to. You know, of course, maybe adapt to climate change, adapt to the pandemic, because they want people to be outdoors rather than indoors, especially as the winter months approach. What is Athens's pitch? Uh, you know, if you could say, and, and right now, let's be let's be frank, uh, you don't see Athens ranking very highly in global quality of life uh, rankings right now, and and maybe you don't seek to be a Vienna, you don't want to be a, a Calgary or a Vancouver or or, or a Melbourne, uh, but. But if you, if you look ahead uh, and you think about the initiatives that are going on, what does Athens have to offer, aside from climate, uh, in, in your perspective, and, and, and lovely weather, that could also force it to, to, to jump the ranks, which would allow it uh, to become a yeah, top 10, top 15, globally ranked quality of life city? Athens has joined this world competition because there is a world competition going on right now among cities. It's a world competition about improving quality of life. It's a world competition about attracting talent, attracting investment, attractive, attracting uh, visitors. How do we do that? We do that by actually changing the city itself. Uh, and to be very specific, earlier I mentioned uh, tactical urbanism and reclaiming public space. Uh, right now, Athens is undergoing uh, its biggest change in the past 20 or 25 years. The face of the Athenian center is uh, radically uh, being transformed. And this process, you know, like any that pains to a birth, always. Uh, as I said earlier, it's not easy because it necessitates that many of us uh, change our habits, our daily habits, but it's been happening. That's why I believe that, you know, it's not just about Athens having joined the race, which it has. It's actually about Athens doing well in this race. Uh, it's just a question of time. That was Kostas Bakoyanis, the mayor of Athens, a city we'll most certainly be keeping our eyes on as we head into 2021. From City Hall, now we head to the long-decorated halls of Mesa Basel, which this year stayed empty, of course. At the end of summer, we were joined by the Global Director of Art Basel, Mark Spiegler, who explained what the pandemic meant for the events industry and why a long-term strategy was, of course, fundamental to its rebound. Mark, do you think there's too much short-termism? If I am a, a CFO uh, and I'm having a conversation uh, with the rest of my leadership colleagues, do you think there's just there's too much of a drive to erect special walls, be that rethinking classrooms and actually making a number of, let's say, permanent fixes right now that you know, we might realize in six months, you know, that was was money wasted. There, there seems to be so much in terms of direction that really sort of makes people panic. And I was looking at something the other day talking about, you know, the great rethink of hotels and that they're going to have to be bigger and they're going to have to be cross all of these different things. But yet, in keeping has been with us for a long time. You know, people have been on coach and horses, staying at the same types of inns for millennia almost. And suddenly, because of something which has been with us for, well, half a year now, that we're, we're totally going to rethink all of these different sectors. And I'm wondering what you make of that. 
So especially if I was the CFO and it's my job to be careful with the company's money, I would say let's not invest any money in things which are very transitional. You know, I don't I think it's better to keep people at home for another six months than to create an office environment which will be unnecessary and frankly unproductive once the situation is behind us in whatever way it turns out to be behind us. I think it makes a lot of sense to invest money now in projects and initiatives that will make sense afterwards. You know, we are, for example, investing heavily in our digital spaces. We're doing experiments now in terms of the online viewing rooms. We're pushing forwards with other ideas that we think will make sense afterwards. You know, but I think you don't want to get skittish. You know, I think to use the analogy that comes from skiing, you know, if you're skiing quite quickly and you suddenly hit an ice patch, the worst thing you can do is overreact. The best thing you can do is to bend your knees so you can absorb more flex and more force and just go over it. You know, the sudden movement is by definition the most dangerous thing that you can do in this kind of perilous situation, which doesn't mean you don't have to move quickly, but you shouldn't just move quickly. I think you have to move quickly where it's absolutely necessary and not move at all where it isn't necessary. You know, what can we learn now? You know, we've learned to be more of a content organization. We've been forced to be more of a content organization because we can't do fair to stay in touch with our market. You know, we've learned to do digital only art market events when originally we planned to do them in parallel to our existing fairs. We've seen our clients, our client galleries, you know, do studio tours with their artists, which a studio tour used to be a thing that was saved for the best collectors or museum directors. And now if you talk to the collectors in far-flung places, you know, in if you're a collector in Peru or Jakarta, you're not doing studio tours in the same way that someone who lives in New York or Los Angeles is, but now you can. And so I think, you know, we have to see this also as a moment to test things and push things forward. Is there a danger mark of demystifying the brand? Because part of it is about, did you end up going to Hong Kong? Were you in Miami? Is there a danger by opening things up too much, making it almost too transparent that there's, yeah, I guess some of the the mystery gets gets eroded. That's not just Art Basel, that's all kinds of brands. I don't think so, to be honest. Because in addition to what I was talking about before, where seeing art in person, meeting galleries in person is a very different thing. Meeting other collectors in person is a very different thing. There's a limit to how much you can do digitally. And I think in a way, you know, we've been putting artworks online from every fair in our online catalog for at least four years. There's something like 40,000 plus artworks from previous fairs. And they went online before the fair. And that didn't stop people from coming. In fact, our attendance rose and rose and rose. I mean, I think the analogy that I think about in this context is music. Musicians who have strong social media feeds, who do live streams, don't have fewer people coming to their concerts. They have more people coming to the concerts. And I think as long as what you're doing is a legitimately compelling live event to the degree that it can't be digitized, when you do digitize it, you only make it more compelling to show up. You only get more people excited about it. I mean, one of the things I can point to in the more than 12 years I've been in our Basel is that we've really pushed forward on the digital in a lot of ways. And it's never hurt our events. You know, we've never felt like fewer people were coming. If anything, more people are coming. But the other thing is this, 
we're never going to get every major international collector to come to our fairs. Fact. And that's okay. But it would be great if in the future, because of everything we've learned and everything our clients have learned during this period, we will have a better experience for the collectors who can't make it. Not so good an experience that they won't feel FOMO because you still want them to feel FOMO, but a good enough experience that they might be more willing to buy art. I'll give you an example. We're introducing in our online viewing room a live chat feature, which will allow collectors to interact with galleries. The galleries can put video out. That's something that I can imagine we'll keep once we have fairs again, because that means that someone can sit in their booth when things are slow and interact with collectors from all over the world. You know, the idea of, of layering another level of experience on top of a compelling physical experience is my goal and something I believe in. I've never believed that the digital endangers the physical. Just Mark, very quickly before we go, you're sitting in a country where there are forces, it seems, who want events to, to happen, as we were just discussing yeah. a bit earlier. Uh, the Swiss really want to be on this front, but you've, as you said, you've done even experiments to see how it will, how it will happen. I guess one part of this as well is, you know, how, how long could it go on without you actually holding physical fairs right now? In order to answer that question, I would have to be not only an expert in live events in the art world, but also an expert in politics and medicine and economics. And there are a lot of people who are setting themselves up to be that kind of expert, and I'm not going to be one of those people. I mean, I don't know how soon we'll be able to do large-scale events in Switzerland. I hope it's sooner than later, and we will certainly try to do them as, as quickly as as it's possible. But we are in a in a in an extremely volatile moment where the medical news changes all the time, where there are steps forward but also steps back. And I think it, a lot of it depends obviously on whether there's a vaccine or a cure that emerges. And in the absence of that, I think whether there are safety measures that are widely accepted and quite effective. And of course, the initial fares, you know, people will have to wear masks and there will be contact tracing, perhaps temperature checks. And that's okay. You know, that that doesn't make it impossible, I think. But, you know, we're not going to wait until it can be exactly as the fairs were in 2019. But we have to wait until the moment where our galleries feel like they're ready to do it because our Basel is known for having the best art in the world, but we don't have any art ourselves. It has to come with the galleries. And the galleries have to feel confident that it will work. Mark Spiegler, Global Director of Art Basel there. And in fact, both Costas Bakianis and Mark Spiegler joined us in the flesh at our live Chiefs event in Samaritz back in September, what seems now almost a surreal lull in the midst of a turbulent year where we could discuss and debate live in person. An event that will be back for a second edition as the tides turn in 2021. So do keep an eye on all of Monocle's regular channels for more on that. Finally, today, though, we're going to stay in Switzerland, but venture a little west and head to Bern, where the final season of this year's Chiefs found Monocle's Tyler Brule at the office of the Swiss president, Simonetta Sommaruga. To any of those who know the Monocle brand, we have some pretty strong links to the Swiss nation. We're honoured, indeed, that Miss Sommaruga could join us. Here's an excerpt of her in conversation with Tyler. Do you worry about an erosion right now, I mean, multilateralism uh, in these times where we we sit, many say it's under threat. And if we sort of carry on where we can only have telephone diplomacy, etc., when so many people say to do proper diplomacy, we need to be face-to-face, we need to be across the table. Do you concern yourself as you look towards even 2021? Because this culture of just kicking things off at the distance now seems almost quite easy because 
Many believe we can, of course, do it with digital devices, but many will also say that you don't really reach resolution over a Zoom call. I think that people have to see each other to really have good discussions to approach. There are many things to look at with a certain worry. Of course, this kind, when, when people cannot get into contact and not see each other, what does that mean? What does it do with people? All the questions of information, for me, something very important. We saw that in our country during this crisis in, in, in March, people used very much newspapers, television, extremely important. Really, you could see that people were so glad that they have credible news where they can be sure that there is no manipulation, that they have the equality also. And at the same time, we see that there are more and more countries which uh, try to manipulate to the freedom of expression is, is, is going to be reduced. And uh, this is why I made together with uh, Madame Bachelet, we make a conference in Geneva where we talked about the freedom of expression and, and freedom for the, for the media. We had testimonials. And I think this was really, for me, an extremely important moment that we, we just, also in this, in this moment where people need this news and uh, that we have more sensitivity or more... And more empathy as yes. well. Empathy, but also that we are aware what's going on and uh, how critical it is when, when the free expression, but also the kind of information people can get, it's getting really in danger. Do you think Switzerland can play even a bigger role in this territory? So home of the, the ICRC, many NGOs, of course, many international organizations. And as you said, we have a problem with verification of news. Uh, we have a problem with authenticity today and a great crisis in just respect for journalism. More journalists under threat, killed, threatened, probably than ever before. And I sort of think about it in a way we everyone gets so excited about digital society, but there's an indecency about it as well. Everyone talks about trying to put the genie back into the bottle because things have gone so crazy with social media. Could Switzerland play a role? Does there need to be a new international institution? If you can have one institution, I'm not sure at the moment, but I think that we are aware that Free media and also to have really professional news is part of the infrastructure of every democracy. This, I think, this is maybe not evident enough. Well, I'm a minister of media, of communication as well. I, we have these structural difficulties for media because there are, well, there's no money for that. People do not pay for that because they think that this thing is free. I think that this is one part of the problem that really I want that the media get more finance and at the same time to have their complete independence. So I have really an amendment now in, in Parliament which guarantees the independence of media, but they get more money. But this is one part and the other part is where really politicians use the media or, or reduce the freedom of expression. And there I think... It's part of a whole system and it's part of a system to, to have no democracy, no freedom of expression, human rights. And that there, what I can say is Switzerland is very strong, committed to international law, to rule of law. We work for that. We insist on that. And we try to do that together with others. And of course, that has to be as well. Or maybe we should take more into account that that means also freedom of expression and 
have this kind of information. Madam Sommeruga, do you think that the world pays enough attention to Switzerland? Because sometimes you can watch or listen to a broadcast or you can read something in a newspaper. Oh, in Switzerland, they're doing fine because it's home to so many institutions. There's so much money there. And you see that it's occasionally sort of dismissed. It's pushed to the side. Would you like to see Switzerland play a bigger role? I mean, we could be talking about the Security Council or, or certainly other channels as well. Well, I think sometimes maybe there are pictures, but this is for every country there are pictures or images of Switzerland. I think everything is easy. And uh, for me, it's important to show how you have to engage. And what we're talking about now today, we are talking about today, this cohesion, this integration, this is really, this is something you have to, you have to invest, to be engaged. It's also to have a government with all these four different parties that means every week in our sessions of the Federal Council, it's not that compromise is not, it comes by itself. Political stability, which we are also a little bit boring, if you want, but this is hard work. This is really hard work. So if we are a model with that for other countries, I don't know, but I think just to say Switzerland is, has a big political stability, it's not enough. It's also to, to see what's behind but you mentioned the Security Council, where Switzerland is a candidate for 2023 and four. And just to say that I think if you look at it from an interior point of view, it's a huge step. Because Switzerland, I mean, we had so many years. We had the UN in Geneva, but we were not the whole member of, of, of UN only since 2002. And we had to try several times until people really saw that uh, where is the need also and why we should and why we can be part of this United Nations. And now to be a candidate is a huge way. And, and I'm very glad about that because that means that our country wants to take more responsibility to expose also to really, really I mean, you have to show you and to show your positions and at the same time, I'm, I think that the way of Switzerland, the, the way of dialogue, the way of inclusion, the way of searching solutions, approaching each other, be pragmatic, and this view of, of minorities, we can bring that in the Security Council, and we will do it. And I'm very glad about that. Well, you have to be elected first. <laughs> <laughs> Madam President, thank you very, very much. Outgoing president of the Swiss Confederation, Simonetta Sommaruga, there in conversation with Monocle's Tyler Brulé. And that's all we have time for on today's special episode of The Chiefs. We'll be back a little later on in the new year with plenty more insights from the top. I'm Tom Edwards. You've been listening to a special edition of The Chiefs here on Monocle 24.